it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle, and uh, I, I turned and looked, and it was, it was already moving away. And it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75-degree angle straight down, almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon Silence crippling confusion and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is session number 11. Uh, this is Dave Ahern, and today we have Andrew Sather, our other co host, with us. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about stock valuation methods. Andrew has a great ebook that he wrote a while back that talks a lot about how to valuate a stock, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and start off our little chat? Yeah, sounds good. So, basically, there's a lot of different ways that you can value a stock, there's a lot of different models. I want to try to talk about some of the simplest ones that you'll approach. You can always take the, the subject a bit further. You can talk to experts. They like to look at things like EV by EBITDA, that's enterprise value to earnings before interest taxes, blah, 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 blah. You could do a discounted cash flow valuation. You can do free cash flow valuations. There's all these different metrics that someone can use to really value a stock. Some of the most basic ones are the ones that I actually use. And so we're going to talk about seven of them. And they're all part of the seven steps that I write about or wrote about in my ebook. 
And it's also the same seven categories I use for my value trap indicator system. So these, all of these combined are what I use to formulate my approach. And it's the exact method I use to buy every single stock that I buy. Now, keep in mind, while you certainly can use one of these, some people do. Uh, you, you do have like the, the Peter Lynch approach where people just strictly look at like a PEG ratio, which could be a combination of two of them that we're going to talk about today. You certainly could just use one. I, I'm just getting more of these pop up in my head. You can, there's a Ben Graham approach that was really, really early on was one that Warren Buffett used. He calls it the net net approach, kind of like the, their metaphor for that is picking cigar butts. And they really use a price to book more focused on net tangible assets. So that's another variation of a, of a valuation method we're going to talk about today. My whole point is that you could center on any one of these valuations. I argue that when you value a stock, you don't want to laser focus on making one ratio that much look that much better than the others. I think you want to take a complete picture approach. Understand that there's three financial statements that every single stock needs to post to the SEC. The SEC puts it on their website, and it's freely available information to us. A lot of investors will just look at one little tiny sliver of one of those financial statements, completely ignore the other ones, and get blindsided when they don't account for things that they're not looking for. So we're going to look at the whole picture. We're going to look at all seven of these, and not so much that they're all excellent, but that they're all good enough to where you can feel comfortable that, number one, we're getting a stock at a good price, and number two, we're getting a stock that has a great business model and is likely to continue to compound and to give us gains in the future. So the first valuation method I want to talk about is probably the most common and you know most every sort of novice investor knows of this ratio and that's the price to earnings ratio, the PE ratio. Now, basically what it's going to tell us is if you think about what a business does, the business will basically spend money and they're going to try to make more than they spend and that difference is a profit. And so profit really becomes the number one goal of a business, something that gets lost in the wash and a lot of people focus on other things. But really at the end of the day, the goal of a business is to turn a profit. So price to earnings ratio gives us, basically it ensures that as investors we're getting a fair share of the profits. If you take a simple example of, you know, I love to talk about Shark Tank, but let's say some business owner out there, I don't know, let's say they produce uh, custom water bottles that are now this new technology and it's a rage in the fitness community. So just off there, you might think, okay, that sounds like a great investment. It's a trendy industry. The industry is expanding. Everybody's trying to lose weight. They have an innovative technology, so it sounds like they have really like a head start on everybody else. But if you're going to really invest money, your friend comes over and says, hey, you know, Bob over here is selling his water bottle business. Why don't we split in and, and buy it together? The first question you're going to want to ask is, well, how much money is he making? Because a guy can, you know, have these water bottles, but if it costs him, let's say, $20 to make a water bottle and he only sells them for 25 you're looking at what, a $5 profit? Sure, he could maybe, if he sells enough of them, 
you know, that, that could be a good sign of a good business model. But, you know, if he's only selling a hundred of them a day and you're trying to buy a business for thousands and thousands of dollars, now it doesn't make a lot of sense. So what it comes down to is how much is Bob going to sell the business to us for and how much, how much earnings are we going to get out of it? So if Dave, if you and I were going to Bob and we're going to try to buy this water bottle business, we're going to, if we're buying it outright from them, basically at the end of the day, I'm getting 50% of the profits. You're getting 50% of the profits. Now, if in an example, let's say his business is making like a hundred dollars, let's make it easy. Okay. He's selling the business for a hundred dollars and he's making $20 of profit, let's say per year. Okay. We're making the numbers really small, making it really easy to understand. So I'm, since I'm splitting with you, Dave, I'm putting in $50. So I'm putting in 50. I'm getting 10 every year. So in five years, I'm going to make my money back. If the company grows, we're able to expand. We're able to make new factories that can make more water bottles. We're able to spend more money to get more marketing, get more exposure to the business, sell more units. Then I could get my money back sooner. Now, if he was selling the same business to us and instead of $100, he wanted $10,000, now all of a sudden... You know, even though the profits might be great, that's such an expensive price for both myself and you to pay that it just doesn't make any sense for us to buy the business because even if the business doubles and is able to make twice, you know, sells twice as many water bottles as they were before, it's still going to take years, maybe decades for us to get our initial investment back. So when you relate what the price of a business is to how much profit it's making, in the most simplest fashion, that's what a P.E. ratio is. And so the reason why it's a ratio is, again, it all comes down to, to the numbers, right? So a business that makes $20 a year and a business that makes $20,000 a year, just because the scale is different doesn't mean that one is necessarily better than the other. You always want to compare it to how much you're paying. And so because you're comparing it, it's a ratio, and that gives you a better sense of how much of a deal you're getting. So on the most basic calculation that there is, it's basically you're doing price divided by earnings, and that will give you the price-to-earnings ratio, the P-E ratio. There's three other price-based ratios that we're going to talk about today. All, well, all four of them, including this P-E ratio, are all calculated in the same way. It's a simple mathematical equation. We're taking price on the top. We're comparing it to one of the metrics, one of the business metrics, one of these results that we can tangibly look at. And we're just comparing to see if it's, if it's a lower ratio, that means it's more favorable for us. So in our water bottle example, if we're paying $100 and it's making $20 in profit, you take 100 divided by 20 and we have a PE of 5. If Bob wants, you know, has stars in his eyes and he's uh, licking his lips at the next Lamborghini he wants to buy and he doesn't think that, you know, we're smart investors and he thinks he can just take us for a ride, he's going to maybe try to sell the business at $10,000 and if it's still only making 20 Suddenly, instead of a PE of five, we could have a PE of 500, somewhere in that range. I don't have a calculator and don't ask me to get one. <laughs> but that's so that's the difference. A PE of five versus a PE of 500. The PE of five is lower and it's likely a better deal for us because we're paying 
less of a price compared to what the earnings are. And so in the stock market, you generally want a lower price to earnings ratio, generally as low as you can get it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the interesting thing about the PE ratio is value investors love the PE ratio. It's a nice, easy, quick and dirty way of kind of getting a general view of whether the stock is priced accurately or not. By that, we I mean that the generally the lower the ratio is, generally the more the, the in a, in essence the cheaper the stock is for us to look at possibly buying. You know anything you know we've talked about this before. Anything in the twenty to twenty five range is you know for a PE ratio is acceptable. You know twenty eight. You know if you're creeping up there, depending on what the company is. But once it starts getting above thirty, thirty five, forty, and then it's just it's becoming way too expensive. You know we talked about Amazon last week and its PE ratio I believe is one hundred thirty nine. So I mean that's just you know, astronomical. I believe Microsoft's is 65 right now. So these are two huge, well, very well-known companies. But they're, you know, the price that people are paying versus the earnings. You're paying a premium for those earnings, and that's where people can get in trouble with some of these stocks. Is this is why this ratio is important? It's not the end-all, be-all that some people can make it out to be. It's a great starting point. Andrew mentioned earlier. I really like how he said that. That this is all these metrics that we're going to talk about are great overview to give you an idea of the financial health of the company and to see kind of where it is, and also to help identify warning signs that may indicate that, hey, maybe this is maybe not something that we're going to want to invest in at this particular time. It may be something you like and you want to keep on your list, but you may look at possibly buying it down the road. But right now, it's just, you know, in essence, too rich for my blood. You know, you go to a BMW dealership and you really want that particular car, but you just can't afford it. You know, it's just too expensive. You know, you wait until maybe you could find a used one or you make a little more money or maybe you buy next year's model, you know, whatever it may be to just, you know, help you find, you know, the the price that's going to fit for you. The other thing I wanted to mention about the PE ratio, there's a lot of different ways to calculate it, and we're not going to go into all those today, but the PE ratio of the S&P 500 right now, I believe, is around 25 or so, which is really, really high. Uh, the average for it, I believe, is around 17, so it's higher than it normally is. And you hear a lot of people talk on the talking heads and the news about you know the stock market keeps going up and up and up. And when it does, yes, the price to earnings goes up because people are paying more for the earnings that are being you know that the company is generating. They're paying more for the profits that a particular company is generating. And as it gets higher and higher, then you get you st- you can start to get into you know, stock market, not necessarily crash, but maybe have a pullback. And those are times where we can jump in and buy things as value investors because we're looking for, you know, deals on companies that we're looking for. So this is where another area that the PE can come into play is it can help us kind of see when things are maybe overvalued for a really good company. And when there's a correction in that price, then we can take advantage of that. So that's, I mean, for me, that's where a P.E. ratio can really come in handy. Yeah, I've I've seen some success with just the P.E. ratio. I remember when I first started out, uh, I think this might be a company you've talked about before, Dave, but Corning. Yep. Um, yep. 
they, I remember they were one of the first stocks I ever bought. I, I talk about how I bought Microsoft. Yep, I also too. bought Corning. That was my first like Benjamin Graham stock. Yeah, mine and, too. <laughs> oh, was it really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, small world. Yeah. I know it was very over, undervalued for quite some time. I don't remember what the exact specific PE ratio for it was, but I do believe it was like under a 15 when I bought it. Mine was under and 15. It was for you as well. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, this this PE ratio stayed low for a while, and even today it's below. I, I haven't looked at the company lately, but I, I'm here on the stock screener right now, and it's at about an eight. So it's still very, very low. And when I bought it, one of the criticisms of it was, oh, well, this stock has been flat for so long. It was flat for like two or three years. But no, you know, being confident in this Graham philosophy, I went ahead and bought it anyway. And within the first year, I think I made 60 or 70% on it. And I think at one point it did double. So this is just one small example, and there's countless more. As you can screen, right now I'm on the S&P. I just have the S&P pulled up on my stock screener. And if we look at sorting through the lowest PEs, you have companies like, which kind of surprises me, eBay's at like a five right now, General Motors, Ford, those are both below 10. You know, generally, different industries tend to trade at lower price-to-earnings ratios, and that's kind of a whole other topic for another day. But you can even compare, like, a PE to its competitors. So if you see one PE lower than another, that might be an indicator that that one company has an advantage over the other as as far as an investment philosophy goes. So there's there's just... Even, you know, Dave made a great point about how the PE is very high today. Don't let that deter you from thinking that there aren't low PEs or these other ratios that we'll talk about that are favorable. Don't think that just because we've seen so much success for all these years that you can't find great opportunities in the market today. Absolutely. You definitely you definitely can. You're right on the money about that. I'm not trying to scare anybody off by what I was saying. I guess I was just trying to breed a word of, into, in you know, of caution. There's a phrase that I like that's uh, I like to use when we talk about the stock market as a general rule, irrationally uh, exuberant. Uh, yes, a, Robert Schell. Yep, yep. And uh it to me that's you know when I when I say phrases like that, that's really kind of where I'm coming from is you need to look at as opposed to looking at the whole stock market, looking at that particular company that you're looking at and take that into context as opposed to what the whole market is because the, the, you're not buying the whole market. You're buying Corning or whoever it is you're looking for. And, yeah, there's there's tons of companies out there, tons of good companies that are out of favor for whatever reason that have a low P.E. ratio that there may be opportunities to get into. And that's where these metrics that we're going to talk about today can help you on that path. You can use those metrics to help screen and find companies that would be good investment opportunities. You know, the the stock market is, you know, it's irrationally exuberant. There are people who are going to get excited about one thing, the flavor of the moment, and they're going to come in and out of that. And you never really know kind of where it's going to go. And our job is to find deals that we can buy with a margin of safety that we can buy that will be you know, great compounders for us as time goes on because eventually the stock market is going to find these things that we're talking about and they're going to discover them and they're going to become more popular. So that's where we can take advantage of that. You sound like you've read my Value Chart Indicator book before. <laughs> a time or two, yes. <laughs> 
Uh, that's maybe even more important to know and understand about these ratios is exactly what you said is while yes, it can find you great deals when they're low, when they are high, that's absolutely big red flag. And we just want to avoid that at all costs. You know, we, you know how Dave and I like to make Amazon our whipping boy. <laughs> There's plenty of other companies out there that have PEs over a hundred right now, which is just absolutely absurd. And even a PE of like 50 or 40, when Microsoft hit its peak back in late 90s, it was one of the biggest, if not the biggest stock as far as market cap went for that time, but the PE was very high. So even though it was a fa- you know, fantastic business, and although Apple has made its mark, it still has not been able to touch Microsoft when it comes to the business side of putting all these PCs in people's offices and that kind of stuff and the way they've been able to compete in the video game space and just so many different aspects, you know, not even to mention all the software licenses they have and the way that now they're changing the Microsoft office to subscription, which is, I think brilliant, even with all this great business success because their PE was uh, maybe not even double, but quite higher than what we like to look at as value investors from that 1999 high, they crashed about 50% when the stock market went through its crash. And it took, um, what is it now, 2017? I don't know the exact number. They finally caught up, but it took them, I believe, like a decade to go from where they were at their peak in 99 to that same market capitalization today. And you may say, oh, okay, we'll just hold for the long term and things will work out even with a high PE. But consider that, you know, in that same time period, you had the S&P 500, which averaged, I don't know, 7, 8, 10% a year. And if you would have just bought that Microsoft at a high PE, your investment stayed flat while the rest of the market went up and continued to compound. So do not take Dave's warning lightly about having high PE ratios and that being an indicator that it should be an investment you want to stay away from. It's a really big part and it's a big warning sign for not just the PE ratio, but the rest of these valuation models that we're going to look at. They, we look at them for a reason and they can signal trouble a lot more than they might signal opportunity. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free. No insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMSS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. HIMSS.com slash investing. 
Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. And just to kind of throw, you know, to tack on to that a little bit about the warning part, I want to throw out three companies that I was just looking at here while we were talking, just to kind of give you an idea of maybe a couple of the stock darlings out there. Netflix, their PE right now is 346. Tesla, who everybody rants and raves about, they have no PE. It's negative. (laughs) (laughs) So that means that you're the 250 some dollars that you're paying a share for that company is for negative earnings. So think about that for you just wrap your brain, your mind around that for a moment. And then you have Apple, who, you know, great company. Your market cap is the largest, I believe, in the S&P. Their PE right now is a little over 17. So, you know, you 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 do the math. I mean, that's just to me, you know, if I was looking at any of those three companies, 
the first two would scare me off. I just uh, that would just too rich for my blood. I'm not saying they're bad companies, and I'm not saying I don't enjoy their products. I love Netflix. Who doesn't? But would I invest in them right now? No way. It's just too expensive for what you're paying for. I mean, you know, to put this in context, you know, if you buy, if you go out and buy a car for that's worth ten thousand dollars, but the PE on it is three hundred forty six, you're gonna pay what is that three hundred forty six thousand dollars for a ten thousand dollar car? <laughs> Why would you do? Who would do that? Nobody would. So you know, it, I'm not saying you should never ever buy Netflix. I'm just saying that there's a lot more opportunity for it to go wrong you know, before it goes right. And, you know, the other flip side of that too is we've talked a lot about this in the past. They don't pay a dividend. So there's, you know, your opportunity for retirement income is based on when you sell the company. You know, you're not getting any residual income from that. Yes, it may be huge someday, but, you know, it's, you know, for me, that's just, that's too rich for my blood. Hey, you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Yeah, history proves it too. I mean, I just gave one example and a couple examples here and there and you can look back and I have a couple more examples in the ebook that is available for free, the 7 steps book, and it just history has proven over and over again that these principles are principles for a reason. And you talk about dividend, that's a perfect segue into one that I wanted to talk about next is dividend and how we can use that to kind of value a stock. Uh, I've talked several episodes. If you've been listening through, if you haven't yet, I recommend going back, listening through the whole archives and just kind of hearing the progression of the different episodes, the different topics we've talked about might help you further along in these, as you build these bricks of understanding how the stock market works. Obviously I'm so incredibly passionate about dividends you know try to do a netflix and chill session with with my dividends at least once a week (laughs) gotta just gotta show the love for them in my opinion if you don't have a dividend you don't have a good investment so number one we want to look at stocks that are paying a dividend we want to see if it's giving us a good yield that's always a good bonus but i don't so i'll look at yield but i don't necessarily disqualify because the company has a a low yield. What I care more about is, number one, that the company has a good payout ratio, and number two, that the company is growing its dividend. So when we talk about payout ratio, let me define that real quick, and then Dave, I'll let you tell us your thoughts as well. So payout ratio is simply how much a stock or a company is paying out from their earnings back to shareholders as a dividend. So we talked about earnings in the the first valuation model. The second one is now how much of that do they pay back to us? So basically what we want to see is a higher one isn't necessarily bad, but you don't want a payout ratio that's above a one. So if you do the calculation, it's another simple division. It's going to be dividends paid divided by EPS earnings per share. So basically, how how big the dividend payment is per share divided by the earnings per share. And so if the dividend is higher than the earnings, that means the payout ratio is going to be above a one. And that's just completely not sustainable. I mean, how can a company pay out a dividend and pay out more than what it's actually making? It's going to either burn through cash or take on a lot of debt. So we don't want companies that are really have this super high payout ratio. And 
we want to maybe caution and just monitor a company that really jumped up high in payout ratio. And if it's a trend that continues and that could be troubling. So basically what a thing like a payout ratio will do is to make sure that it kind of gives you an aspect of growth in a way. Because if, if we got the second part of dividend growth taken care of, and if the earnings aren't growing, then you're going to see that payout ratio increase and eventually it will get above a one and that's going to be a problem. So payout ratio is one way to make sure that the business is growing and it's keeping up with its growing dividend payments. And it's basically telling us that profits, profitability is healthy and it's healthy enough to pay a dividend so we can be relatively confident that their dividend payments will continue and hopefully even increase over time. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's that's you're right on the money with all that. That's dividends are our our best friend. It's as I've said before, it's the friend that keeps on giving. And you know, looking at the payout ratio is is so important. Uh, ben Reynolds mentioned that when we were talking to him as well. That you know, you're looking for a payout ratio that indicates that the company still will have money to be able to use to reinvest into their own business as well. You know, if the company is paying out all of their earnings or close to all of their earnings to the shareholders, well, you know, in the short term, that's great because, yeah, we all like more money, but, you know, it becomes unsustainable if things happen to the business and they don't have enough money to, you know, fix something, buy something, you know, make an acquisition that's going to help the business grow, anything that may come along the way and they have to borrow that money, that's, you know, that's bad. We don't want that. And, you know, like Andrew was saying, you know, as they as they look at the payout ratio and as it gets closer and closer to one, then they're going to have to start borrowing for that. That's that's definitely a big big no no. And you know to kind of use Apple again, you know their their payout ratio right now is uh, twenty six, and their dividend yield is lower. It's one point five seven, which is not huge. And they've only been paying a dividend for a short period of time, so it's not they don't have a, a long history of that. They have a ton of cash on their on their balance sheet right now, and so they're flush with money and they have the ability to give it back. But you know, being that they're a tech company, they also spend a lot of money on R and D, research and development, trying to come up with a new iPhone or whatever it is that they're trying to create, whether it's a electronic car or you know, being able to fly us to the moon and back in two seconds. You know, who knows what they're going to come up with? But the uh, the point of of all this is, you know, dividends are our friend, and we want to see companies that are going to be consistently giving out dividends. Now, the, one of the cool things about dividends is that in addition to the great compounding that it can give to us, it can also become a source of, I guess, comfort with the company in of the fact that the longer that they pay a dividend, the more they're going to want to continue to pay that dividend. And it's, it could become a kind of a, a self-reinforcing thing with the company because they know that investors are going to be buying shares in their business because of the dividend that they're paying to the uh, investors. And so as they do that, they're going to want to keep that up. And so that becomes more of a focus as they go along. I'm not saying that, again, it should be, you know, they pay out all their earnings to their shareholders, but, you know, they want to, it becomes important to them and growing the dividend will become important to them. And the next thing you know, it becomes kind of a a self-fulfilling prophecy where they, this is something they got to do every single quarter, every single year. And that's what we want. You know, those are the companies that want that are shareholder friendly. And that's where a dividend becomes so important to us because we're looking at a company that's thinking about us because as we've talked about 
before, when we take our hard-earned money and invest that in that company, you know, we expect a, a dividend. We expect a return on that in, on that money that we've given them. And a dividend is one of the ways that they can pay us back by doing that. Even if the company has a poor year and doesn't grow as well, you still have that dividend that you're going to be receiving from the company. And, you know, that's key to investing. And, you, you know, you mentioned Apple having kind of a lower yield. Uh, I can't remember if I've mentioned this before. Who cares? It's still a good point. If you look at like a company like Walmart back in the 1987, they their yield was only 0.44%. And they were one of those companies that just continued to grow it. And they grew earnings and dividends and they kind of went hand in hand. So guess what? If you were to put 10000 into Walmart in 1987, you fast forward a couple of decades, it would have been almost, I mean, over probably 200000 even more. Uh, I did did the calculations on one of my blogs, one of my blog posts. It was, what was it? Anyway, who cares? It's, it's really high. You turned a small amount of money into a big amount of money. And that number is probably even another scale higher today. People can do the math if they want. So dividends are very important and getting that growing aspect is very important as well. I like to see some sort of track record of growth. Obviously more is better. A higher percentage per year is better, but it's not anything that's, going to give us a red flag. It's more of if we see some growth, it's a good thing to have. And it's a good signal that, okay, we can be confident that, like you said, Dave, the company that pays a dividend now might have this self-fulfilling prophecy of being able to continue to pay and grow that dividend over time. Next model here that we should look at is earnings growth. I mentioned the PEG ratio, which was the Peter Lynch thing that he really popularized. It's one ratio you can use. It basically adds a growth component to the PE ratio. I like to just look at earnings growth on its own. And you basically just want to make sure that there is good earnings growth. I've kind of, it's, it's tough. There's not, it's not like a PE or it's not like one of the price ratios where you really have like a set standard and it's not like, payout ratio or debt to equity where there's really generally accepted by a lot of people what these numbers should be. Earnings growth and how people look at it is kind of like the wild, wild west right now. And there's just so many varying ideas about what's good, what's not. And there's just so many different ways that people look at it. You'll have analysts who look at quarter over quarter, maybe quarter versus estimates over year. All these just various growth components that people all look at, analysts, investors, hedge fund managers. So it really is hard to give like a set number on what growth is good. I really liked to look at growth over a long time period. And I think that differentiates me from a lot of people who look at growth just in general. I like to look at it at a very long time period. I like to see growth that it doesn't need to be perfectly consistent every single year, but ideally over enough time, it should give us, not to say that's going to be a one-to-one ratio, but if, if it gives us superior growth in the earnings, we should expect that we'll get superior price growth as well for our own stocks. So I've, I've done some research in the past, looked at, Again, you want to look back in time, see what, what what worked back then, and are there any correlations and what kind of things can we kind of deduce from this? So 
what was it back in 25 years ago i looked at this was actually an article ben reynolds wrote and it matched up perfectly with the research i was doing at the time but basically there were 15 stocks all average 16 percent or more per year as far as compounding the share price and a big percentage of them not all but a big percentage of them all had double digit growth per year averages and so not to say that it's a panacea and that double digit earnings growth is going to mean that you're going to have fantastic results over time but it is a good thing to screen for it's a good thing to look at and it's one of those things that if I'm comparing one stock that looks cheap and another stock that looks cheap but maybe this first stock has double digit growth compared to another stock that maybe only grows 2 or 3% over this long time period then you're probably going to want to go with that first stock because that growth is there not you know the trains don't last forever but the best thing we can do as investors since we don't have a crystal ball is to look at the past and try to make a best judgment based on the past and hope for the best for the future buy enough stocks where we're protected in case any of those trains crash but i think looking at earnings growth over a long time period and trying to find more, more is better. And that's the way I look at earnings growth. More definitely is better. I love the uh, the 10 year approach. You know, I, I was thinking about a little bit about this today. There was an article in the Business Insider about the recent IPO of, of Snapchat and uh, the company that did the analysis that was also putting the money behind the Snapchat IPO made some errors in their calculations. Oops. And yeah, oops. And they went back and adjusted their errors. They made a, you know, an amendment to their financial documents. However, they didn't change the price that they were recommending for people to buy. So I guess the point that I'm wanting to make with that is that earnings is a great thing to look at, but it's also, it can be manipulated. And it can be a dangerous game if you play it quarter by quarter. One thing you'll notice about the stock market as you start to get more into this and follow it, it's a little oh, like the flavor of the month. You know, people wait, you know, on bated breath for every quarterly earnings report and they make their buy decisions based on that particular buy or sell recommendation from an analyst or you know, whatever the market may think of that particular company at that particular time. And the reason why that can be a dangerous game is I'll compare it to my friend baseball. The baseball season started on Sunday and my favorite team, the San Francisco Giants, spent $60 million to go out and buy a closer, you know, a gentleman who can pitch in the, the last inning of the game and help finish the game off for the team. They were winning the game going into that inning, and he had a very bad game, and he gave up two runs, and they ended up losing the game. Kind of a forecasting of what, or I guess a foreshadowing of what happened last year. And as a baseball fan, I know that there's another 161 games to go. They were never going to go 162 and 0. So, you know, I just took it with a grain of salt. It was, you know, disappointing, but hey, it's one game. They got another 161 to go. Sure enough, the next day they won the game. The pitcher pitched great. 
you know, everything's fine and dandy. But if you were going to overreact, you could freak out and sell your stock based on that one particular day, based on the earnings that you saw for one particular quarter. And doing what Andrew is recommending, having a long-term view at that gives you a much better stability of the company. And, you know, you can manipulate, you can fake, you can rely on somebody else's opinion or judgment on the earnings to make your decision on whether you're going to buy or sell that company based on a very short frame of time frame. Three months in the business world is, you know, infinitesimal compared to a 10, 20 year time period. And, you, you know, a company that big, they can't make changes that are going to affect real change in a company in a three month period, time period. I mean, think about where you work and, you know, they enact to some change in a company. How long does it take for everybody to get comfortable with the change and for it to start to be effective and to start to make an impact on the company? Depending on what the change is, it could take you know, months to years before the changes are even felt. And so, you know, basing your reaction on what happens in a three or six month time period is, you know, it's maybe not the best decision. But looking at something over a 10 year time period, that's going to really tell you that this is what the company is doing and this is where it's going. You know, I'll be honest with you, I kind of go back and forth on the whole earnings thing, and I think it's a great thing to look at, but I guess I, I've, as I've read more about the stock market and I've read some of the things, the shadiness that's gone on with some earnings reports and things like that, I guess I get a little bit jaded about it, especially in the short term. I think in the long term, it's absolutely critical to look at, but if I'm looking at it as a decision on based on the three month or six month or a year, you know, decision, you know, I, I'm going to take other things into consideration as well. I guess a question I wanted to ask Andrew while we were talking here was, so we're talking about kind of looking at the 10-year growth period. Where do you go to find that kind of information? Number one, you can go to sec.gov and you can pull up annual reports. I have a blog post about how to read that for people who aren't aware. And lately I've been using a website called, what is it, ADVFM, some, some combination of those five letters. <laughs> and it basically takes the the data from the sec.gov website and puts it on there so you can actually pull the numbers quite quickly and see what those 10-year numbers are. I've made a spreadsheet that kind of helps me with those calculations, make them faster. I like to automate stuff like that. And so that's one way to do it. I caution using that AV site because... Sometimes they make mistakes. I've seen them already in the short amount of time I've been using that site. So if you're going to make an investment decision, definitely double check. Go to the straight to the source, which is sec.gov. Make sure you're pulling from that data. But if you want to quickly kind of look through ideas and stuff, then I'd use that F Advin. Yeah, I think that's how you say it, Advin. Okay, cool. All right. Well, so what's the next? Uh, what's the next item up for bid? Okay. Price to book ratio, uh, very similar to the price to earnings, but instead of looking, first we were looking at the income statement with the price to earnings and the earnings growth. Now we're going to look at the balance sheet. This, the easiest way I can kind of describe this is if earnings is a company's paycheck that they bring home, their book value is going to be their net worth. So, and it's literally that simple of a calculation. Book value is just how much a company owns minus how much it owes. Just like how we might have a mortgage on a house, might have some retirement accounts, 
Your net worth is going to be your assets minus your liabilities, the liabilities being the debt that you owe, and it's the exact same thing with a company. Assets minus liabilities. So where the price to book ratio comes in, and this is really where Benjamin Graham got most of us started and really got us thinking about this ratio. And that's, again, I talked about Corning, how it had a low price to earnings ratio. It also had a very, very low price to book ratio that was below one. And so combining those two, I was like, wow, this is, this is a great buy. I think Benjamin Graham would be proud and turned out to be a great buy. So for a price to book, you're just basically looking at what the book value is and we're buying at what the company's net worth is. So if you can get a book value, a price to book value under one, that basically means you're paying less of a price than what it's actually worth on its books. So in like a worst case scenario, if the company were to liquidate, you'd actually, in essence, be getting more money back than what you paid because once the liabilities are all paid, there's a certain amount of assets left and then it gets distributed to the shareholders. So if you can buy at a price to book below one, all of a sudden, you know, you could just be making a return just based off that alone. So that's the general idea of the price to book ratio is you're trying to get a good deal based on how much a company is worth. And when we talk about assets, it's talking about the property, equipment, things like the real estate it owns, things like inventory, basically anything that helps the company to make a profit, that's going to be an asset. If it has a value that can be sold out in the marketplace somewhere, it's going to be an asset. So, you know, of course, why why wouldn't we want businesses that have high assets? High assets mean high earnings and it just kind of self-perpetuates into nice gobs of cash for people. So, the lower a price to book means the lower price you are paying compared to how much book value you can get, and obviously lower is better. So what would be what would be the highest on that metric you would be willing to go before it would be scary? Oh, that's a good question. So I talk about this, and I really put like a formula to it in my Value Trap Indicator book. That's kind of next level stuff, but it's a, kind of like a sliding scale. So I don't put like a hard, fast rule on, okay, anything below this is where I, I draw the line. Basically, it's anything around this number is okay, and then the further away you get from it, it gets progressively worse. So basically, like a 1.5 is something that is kind of like that middle point for me. Below 1.5, I'm a static, and above 1.5, I start to get cautious. That's not to say I won't buy a company with a price to book uh, above 1.5. I, I bought a company like Hormel back, I don't know, maybe like a year, year and a half ago. And I remember that price to book was, if not under, if not barely under three, maybe it was three or a little, it was around that range, three-ish, maybe below three. And that stock, you know, even to this day has returned me 40% or so. So again, it's lower, it's better, but what we really want to avoid is that point you made back with the PE ratio, Dave, of really want to avoid really high ratios, the price to book. If it's really high, that means you're not getting very many assets and you're likely paying a high price and a high valuation on what the business is potentially actually worth. So we want to avoid that because a high valuation usually means that the bubble will pop one day. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Okay. What, uh, what, what's, what's next? Okay. Price to sales and 
this is similar to the price to book. Basically, we're going to look at sales. That's on the income statement. It's a revenue thing. So if you think about it, a company needs to turn a profit, but they can't turn a profit unless they get sales first. So the price to sales kind of makes sure that everything there is okay. You talked about earnings manipulation, which I think is a fantastic point. And one way to mitigate that is to make sure that your price to sales is low. If you have a very high price to sales with a good PE ratio, there is a chance that a company could be manipulating earnings. It's like, okay, well, if their revenue is like this, and how are they pulling these earnings out of thin air? That's what looking at price to ratio will kind of help filter out for you. So it's very similar to the price to book ratio. You want to find something lower is better. Below one is fantastic. Anything around 10 is going to be terrible and definitely a red flag. And again, around around the same range of the price to book, some somewhere around 1.5, 3-ish could be okay for you're starting to get the gray area. Five, I don't know. So again, no hard, fast rule, but that's kind of the heat map of how we want to use these ratios. A guy named James O'Shaughnessy, which is another one of my big influences, and he wrote a book called What Works on Wall Street. He looked at, going back to past research, going back into history and looking at what kind of simple ratios, like the ones we're talking about, what kind of simple valuation models really did well over the long term. And he found that combining both price to book and price to sales, those two combined actually, I think they outperformed pretty much everything else. So again, past is an indicator of, of future, but it's, a good generality and it's definitely something we want to consider based on this kind of research and it logically makes sense as well. Well, and you know, we don't know the future, so we only have the past to go off of as a guide. So, you know, that's a, that's a great point. I have not read that book, but it's definitely, it's, I think the second on my list next to read. So I'm looking forward to reading that book. I know you've mentioned it several times. The, uh, the thing I like about all the stuff that we're talking about today is that we are looking at, all of the different statements that the company will put out in their 10Ks and 8Ks, uh, or 10Qs, I'm sorry, with the balance sheet, the income statement, and the cash flow statement. And, you know, this is where you can start to get into the nitty gritty of the companies. And using these uh, formulas and ratios that we're talking about can help you start to kind of dive into those statements to help you learn better about the company. Now, I know not all of us are not finance majors, and a lot of us that are listening to this, as well as myself, did not go to school for finance, but this is how you can start learning some of those ratios and some of those, uh, you know, kind of where these numbers are coming from, because that gives you a better in-depth idea of what's going on with the company. I know when I start doing analyzations and writing articles about particular companies, I like it so much because it gives me, I really have to dive into the company as opposed to just reading a little bit about it. I start digging into the numbers and looking at what's really going on and you start seeing patterns and it really becomes kind of a fascinating, it's like a book, you know, it's, you're reading a book and you're learning more about it. When you start reading the numbers about the company, they start telling you a story. And I think that's to me what becomes so interesting about the company. You read about how they're changing a particular item or they're coming out with a new product and you can see that the research and development has been working on this product and now that's you know going to affect certain things in the, in the you know in the statements as well so it to me it's just how they're all intertwined is so fascinating 
Yeah, and I love how you say, you know, you don't have a finance background. I don't have a finance background. And even though I, I'm able to really sound very intelligent, I sound like it's obviously something I'm passionate about, but I have been digging into this kind of stuff for quite a while. So I want to really make the clarification that when I started out, it was back in 2012, maybe. I didn't know a thing. Like, I'm an engineer by trade. I the most exposure I had to the stock market was MotleyFool.com. Fool.com and just kind of nitpicking here and there on different things I would read. I didn't know any of this stuff. But what really drew me into it was the fact that if you notice every single ratio we've talked about, super basic. Like we're not, even though my value trap indicator, if you ever dig into that spreadsheet, you'll be like, whoa, what's he doing here? But when it, when you first get started and you just un, really understand the concepts and what we're trying to teach here, it's all basic, basic math. It's all simple pieces of the balance sheet or the income statement like profit. Everybody can understand profit. A dividend, we can understand that. Assets, we can understand that. Revenue, we can understand that. We've got two more left to go today and those are very simple as well. So it's it's not... You don't have to pull out some sort of, I don't know, all-night cram session where you're looking at 50 screens and trying to pick apart all these different, I don't know, pieces of information and trying to put a puzzle together. It's, it's really, like Dave said, like reading a book. It's just starting at the what you can understand and just slowly trying to absorb it. And I think having seven steps, that's something that's very digestible. It's like having seven days of the week, something we can really remember and and put to our mind. And you can chase the rabbit hole down as far as you want to go. But really, if you just have these seven understandings that we're talking about here, that's going to put you far ahead of so much of the competition. I mean, we talked about the discrepancy in P.E. ratio you had the Apple, which was reasonable, and then Tesla and Netflix, which weren't. So there's such a big portion of the market that's not even looking at the most simple ratio like a PE and using that as part of their investment philosophy. So you can really find an advantage by understanding these things and trying to apply them to your own situation to whatever scale that may apply to you. I think it can still be very helpful. So this, the next category I want to talk about is the debt to equity. And this is less of a valuation model per se. It's more of a red flag indicator. So I've done research that spans back over pretty much the past century as far as I'm talking about the 21st century from 2000 on. I looked at all the major bankruptcies, the biggest ones that we saw. I ran plugged them all into my spreadsheet, my VTI spreadsheet, and I looked at, okay, are there any similarities? What I found was that debt to equity being high is a high indicator of risk and bankruptcy. So all the debt to equity does is just tells us how risky a stock is. And in general, we want to stay away from stocks that have high debt to equity ratios. The equation is quite simple. You just take, there's a couple ways to calculate it. I just like to take the most simplest way because That's the way I generally like to do things. Take total liabilities and divide it by the shareholder's equity. So you're literally doing what the ratio sounds like. You're taking debt and dividing equity. 
equity is the same as book value, like we said, kind of like the net worth of a company. So the average debt to equity is around the one. Obviously, anything below that is nice. And as you get higher, it's kind of like a sliding scale, kind of like a heat map as it goes further and further away, we get more and more cautious. And it's really, that's really all there is to it. And like I said, research has shown, I'm sure there's other research that people have done, but I did my own research with all these, I looked at the 30 of the biggest bankruptcies and I looked at all the data and that was one of the things that really stood out to me. And it was very illuminating in your book. Uh, I remember when I was reading that, you know, some of the companies, obviously Enron, you know, was one of the big ones. Most people have heard of that company and, you know, that whole situation that happened and, you know, the, the man that ran it was a crook and he, he scammed a lot of people out of a lot of money. And, you know, if you had been using Andrew's VTI index, you would have seen that the debt to equity ratio was monstrous and it was what ultimately led to their downfall. And, you know, as any of us know, you know, I work in the bank business and I see people all the time with way more debt than they can handle. You know, they have credit card payments, they have car payments, they have mortgage payments, you know, they have, you know, Kohl's credit cards and Target credit cards and, you know, bank credit cards and they just, they're so much debt and they struggle and struggle and struggle. Well, same, same thing applies with a company. You know, when you buy, you know, when they buy a company or they borrow money to make improvements in their business, they got to pay that back. And as the interest rates go up or down, that affects their payments. And the higher debt they have, the more impact that's going to have on the earnings of the company because they're going to have less earnings that they can use to pay us back or to invest, reinvest in the company. So it becomes kind of a, you know, a cycle and, you know, it's, it's so dangerous. And that's one of the absolute first things that I look at when I find a company that I'm interested in. I start looking at all the numbers and then I come to the debt to equity and it's really high. Then I'm like, I'm out. You know, I'm just done. I'm just, I don't care. It, to me, that's, that's the killer. Everything else I can kind of work with, but that one's the killer because, you know, that's, it's, has such a huge impact on whether a company is going to go bankrupt or not. You know, the, the sales can flag a little bit here or there. You know, but the debt to equity, it if it's high, it's it's a death knell, and it's something that you definitely want to stay away from. Nobody talks about it really either. No, they really don't. Which boggles my no, mind. It's, it's yeah, it it is it is you know a boggling, you know, it it's you know it has such a huge impact on the the health of the company. Just like, I mean, it's no different than our own personal lives. You know, if you if you have a really high credit card debt, you know, once you get that thing paid off, isn't it? It's just a huge relief. You know, you have that money now. You don't have to pay to the credit card company. It's just, you know, it's it's liberating. And, you know, so think about that extrapolated over the millions and billions of dollars that, you know, these companies are dealing with. And that's it's a huge impact on, on the business. Yeah, I mean, they can just simply take those interest payments that they were making for to service their loans and they can use that to invest more or it's just give it to us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just so many things they can do with less debt. And while, you know, more debt can power higher earnings, it comes with a risk that really, uh, I think it was Warren Buffett said it best, you don't know who's swimming without their pants off or something until the tide goes in. So right. that's really <laughs> the case with a lot of these companies with high debt to equity ratios. Um, people will laugh at us for now, but, you know, wait till the tide comes in. Yep, exactly.
Exactly. So what's the last okay. one? Uh, price to cash. I would love to have another discussion with you, Dave, about cash. I think cash flow statements very controversial, and yep. there's just a million ways you could go with it. I like to keep it super, super simple. Basically, the purpose of cash is kind of what I talked about before, where if a company has is trying to pay out more dividends than it's earning, that means it's got to draw from its cash balance. And in the same way, if there's little hiccups in the business, there's things that come up, if there's a year of bad earnings, whatever it may be, they got to go to their, they got to go to the bank, they got to use their cash. Uh, you, Dave, you mentioned how Apple has a lot of cash. That's great, and it's a nice buffer to have. Again, I don't think a lot of people look at the cash flow statement the same way I do. There's different ways you can kind of value a stock based off cash and the way cash is flowing in and out from year to year. I just simply like to look at cash as kind of like an emergency fund, kind of like how people have emergency funds in personal finance and what's what's the cash doing? Well, the cash is just sitting there. It's not making a, a return for us. For example, if a business wanted to invest their money, you know, they could leave it in cash or they could buy more equipment or they could, they, you know, businesses can actually buy stocks. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, that's how they made most of their money is they took their assets and they reinvested it and bought companies either outright or bought shares in other companies. So while at the same time you don't want a company that's just not buying any assets and is just letting their cash sit there, you also don't want a company that has little cash balance because just like a debt to equity thing, if, if a roadblock comes up and they run over and they don't have much cash, it could really mean some serious problems and if, trust me, if you see problems in the business model, you'll see problems in the market, and that's really going to hurt your investment results. So in the same token, I like to look at price to cash, and I just want to make sure it's not like 100 or something. A uh, general rule, I hat tip to Porter Stansberry. He used to have a podcast, but he doesn't anymore. He was one of my early mentors that I listened to. He should write a book someday because I think it would be one of those I would put it on my bookshelf at least, but mm-hmm. he liked to talk about price to cash under 10. I, if any of all the ratios, I'm kind of more, the most lenient on price to cash because to me, cash balance doesn't do much except make sure we have that peace of mind and that emergency fund. So it could be higher than 10. I've bought stocks below around 20. I'm sure I bought around 32. It's it's not one of those things that is as stringent as like a price to book or a price to sales, but it is something you want to consider and you want to make sure it's not an absurdly high number because that could be a red flag and a problem. Exactly. Well, you know, the, the phrase, uh, cash is king. Mm-hmm. It applies to our personal lives as well as businesses. You know, the, the more cash you have on hand, the more ability it gives you to do other things. Like Andrew was saying, you know, it's kind of a, a rainy day fund, if you will. You know, Apple, you know, has such a huge cash balance right now. I think I was reading the other day that they have enough cash on hand that they could buy some small third world countries. Uh, their, their income is more than some of their GDPs of some of these companies. So, you know, it's just a massive, massive number. But the, the point I'm trying to make with all this is that, you know, cash is really what makes the business run. And Andrew and I are definitely going to have a conversation about cash and the cash flow statement and and some of those things and how it affects different things. But I guess all I'll say about cash is that it it's really what 
a business is looking for and it's where it's driving it and it's what the company does with it makes a big impact on your investment. And so like Andrew has said, I have, you know, the, you know, nodding a cap to, to Porter, you know, I look at it below 10 as well, but it's not a hard and fast rule and it kind of depends really on the other metrics. It's, it's not as critical to me as debt to equity or price to book or price to sales or even price to, you know, PE, but, it is important. It's something to keep in mind. And again, it's part of the whole framework of what we're looking at. So if everything is in line and that one is just hugely out of whack, then it may be worth another look and to find out why that number is the way it is. Because, you know, there may be a reason. Maybe we made a mistake in our calculations or there's something else going on. So you can kind of determine from that point. I guess that's kind of my thought on that. Uh, that's fantastic. I completely agree. I mean, what would a country that Apple bought look like? Would they put up like glass <laughs> walls and have everybody wear like a uniform or how would that work? <laughs> I don't know. That's an interesting question. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't really know if that's a country I'd want to go to. I mean, Apple stores kind of freak me out already. Yeah. Can you buy a country? <laughs> I don't know. Can you do that? <laughs> I don't know if you can do that. Uh, so that's interesting. All right, folks. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate taking the time. Hope you got something out of this and enjoyed our conversation. If you have any questions or comments on what we were talking about today, we'd love to hear from you. Also, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. The higher our reviews get, the more iTunes will rate us and the more people can hear it and we can help some more people. And a note on that as well, we'd love to have some more people on the podcast to talk to them. So, if you have any questions that you'd love to, for Andrew and I to talk to you about on air, we'd love to hear from you. Just let us know and we can schedule something. So without any further ado, thanks for listening and you guys have a great week. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.